All right, we are in week two of launch. And uh, last week, if you missed it, uh, we were talking about how you will miss God's launch sequence entirely for your life unless you first gain a new perspective on life that only he can give you. Now, if you're taking notes today, message two of our launch series is entitled New Position. So we talked about new perspective last week, and today we're talking about new position. Now, the quarterback position last year for the Longhorns, it's my team, uh, was played by Gerard Hurd, if you've heard of him. Uh, I just came up with that today, so you can't use that. But Gerard Hurd played quarterback last year. It was a losing season for the Longhorns. And so at the end of the year, in December, they just packed up their stuff. They went home. They didn't have a bowl game to play on. They were just left to wait for the new season. But listen, waiting, as we're going to see today, is not what we think it is. For the Longhorns this last year, waiting meant new work, new pain, and specifically for Gerard, a new position as he was moved to slot receiver to better help his team. And now with a long-awaited rise in power, even though they lost last night, they'll, they'll be all right. It'll be good for them. With the long-awaited rise of some new power on their team, he plays a vital role in a new thing. And look, this all just serves as a small average, if you will, uh, illustration about how in life, God often positions and repositions us, but our job is to be steadfast in waiting on him so that we can receive the power that only he gives. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Just to catch you up in the book of Acts, we're going to cover the rest of Acts chapter 1. But to catch you up on uh, the first part of Acts chapter 1, talking about waiting, verse 4, Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, comes and gives people a command. Now again, I have to remind you, anytime a dude who was dead is now not dead, and he's telling you to do things, you listen up. Now he's saying, wait. It's not my favorite word in the English lexicon, wait. But that's what he says. He says, wait, and in verse 5, he says, not many days from now, you're going to receive the promise that I've had for you. And if it were me, I would have been like, okay, Jesus, I love that. Now, this whole not, not many days from now thing, how many days is not many days? And as much as we want that in our lives, right? Like we want God to like kind of tell us exactly what's going to happen and when it's going to happen so that I can put it in my phone and I can have Siri remind me about all the things that God's going to plan to do in my life. I would love it if it was like that, but it's not. But I know that the disciples in the first generation before Siri, they had very similar thoughts and anxiousness because in verse six, they said, "Uh, so Jesus, will you at this time? See, they're anxious. Will you at this time restore the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus' response, if you didn't know, this is me paraphrasing. His response, in essence, was, uh, yeah, so as, as far as the timing stuff, uh, yeah, none of your business. But, verse 8, he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses, which we didn't cover last week. Actually, the word witness is the word martyros, meaning you'll be my witnesses or martyrs, everywhere. But wait, he says. And then right with that, he just kind of dropped the mics and just ascends into heaven. And if that ever happened with the real dude, just kind of ascending in the clouds, you'd be kind of, what? And that's what they were like. They had to be like this for a while, just gazing off into heaven is what it says. And they, they probably were doing this for a while because two angels had to show up and like, kind of be like, hey guys, 
what are you staring at? You know, Jesus is gone, but he's coming back. So you better get busy at obeying what he told you to do and waiting on the Lord. And that's just what they did. That's what we're going to pick up in verse 12 of chapter 1 of Acts. I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet to honor God's word because it stands above us and our thoughts and our opinions. We're going to read uh, verses 12 through 14 of Acts chapter 1, and we'll cover the rest after this. So here we go. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, about a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered into Jerusalem, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew and Philip and Thomas and Bartholomew and Matthew and James, the son of Alphaeus and Simon, the zealot and Judas, the son of James, not to be confused with the other Jewish, the son of Judas, the son of Iscariot. Verse 14, check this out. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his Jesus brothers. Thank you. Y'all can be seated as we pray. Lord, here in Acts chapter one, you were uh, positioning the hearts and the people as you were preparing them for huge power. And Lord, we can know today that we're not just reading a, a book about about myths that may or may not have happened. This, this is the person that you were to these people, and you are the person that we can still devote ourselves in one accord to, and we can wait on you, and we can still see your promise unfold as you position and reposition us. Help us to, with confidence and faith, to wait on you right now where we are. Amen. Today we're going to cover pretty much the majority of Acts chapter 1, even some things that as they were waiting together, as it describes, they were together in one accord, uh, describes in verse 14. We're going to move on and, and pretty much cover the rest of the book of Acts. And I want to just share and, and see how we can gather some hugely important principles, some vital and foundational things for our lives that we can learn about how God meets us as we're waiting on him in the positions that we're in. We have, I've basically, as we move through the plot of Acts chapter one, I have three basic points I want to share with you. So here goes that first one. Very simple. Number one, positioning precedes power. Positioning precedes, it means it comes before power. And we, we can't miss in our rush to see the power, the unfolding of the promise of whatever God's bringing in our lives, we can't miss how God positions us in our heart and in our circumstances. He's doing something that precedes, that comes before the power. Now we left off in verse 14. It says the disciples were praying with one accord. I love how it says that they were devoting themselves. It uses a past perfect, meaning they were in the habit of devoting themselves. They were devoting themselves. Now let me paraphrase as they were devoting themselves. Let me just paraphrase 
the rest of this chapter here. Because if you read too fast through these things that happen in the rest of Acts, and you maybe just skip right to the, the, the part that makes me kind of most excited in, in chapter 2, if you skip right to chapter 2 and you miss what's happening uh, principally in the rest of chapter 1, you might miss something important and skim by something that might be a seeming formality, an external formality, but that teaches us something about our lives, about how God positions us where we are. So they're praying together, and they're in one accord, as verse 14 describes. But then verse 15, Peter stands up, and he says to about the 120 people, he says, Brothers, we need to replace Judas. See, Judas had just died after betraying Jesus. Uh, We're talking about Judas Iscariot. We need to replace Judas. And for them, they knew that 12 positions for right governance were required. 12 apostles were important for God to rightly organize and position them before the power was to unfold that was shortly coming, that Jesus said, not many days from now. You see, it was important, and they needed to select a candidate. And so what they did is they they brought two candidates up, Joseph and Matthias, and they ended up casting lots. Now, I don't know uh, if, if this was the right thing for them to do, but I know that uh, it's, it's not a precedent for how we need to make decisions. Casting lots to choose a person was, it's really kind of comparative to how, how we flip a coin today. Heads I win, tails you lose, right? We flip coins to make maybe lesser important decisions. And they were essentially flipping a coin here. Is it Matthias that will choose or is it Joseph? Now, we can know that this isn't a principle for, for us. I can, I can imagine one of our beautiful young women here uh, making a huge life decision like this, right? Like, you take a few young men in the church aside and be like, look, you guys are exhausting me. All this competition for me, let's just settle it. Let's flip a coin here. The winner gets to get me a really nice ring and marry me. We'll just settle it like this, okay? Now, I would advise you, it's probably not a good way to make a, a decision Because, you know, for big decisions about the important positions in your life, a little bit more nuance, prayerfulness, godly counsel is required. Uh, And yet in this moment, whether or not this is the thing that they were supposed to be doing, we do know by what's in scripture here that positioning precedes power. That it was important to God, as we read the rest of the book of Acts, it was important to God that 12 positions were chosen. We should be asking why. why. Why, regardless of how they chose to make this decision, why was it important to replace Judas before they carried onward? You see, if I was the leader here, and I can, we can all thank God that I wasn't the leader at this point, I'd have been like, man, get over it. Judas was a skunk. He was a snake. But man, we still got 11. We're only one man down. Man, let's not, let's, we can't worry about this too much. Let's just get on with it. We got work to do. That would have been me. You know, 11 people is fine. You know, ele- the best game in the history of earth, on the earth, is played with just 11 men on each team, right? We're talking about football, not soccer. If you're, so- if you're a soccer person, that's okay. You can just relate that to your favorite sport. <laughs> but that's not the point. The, the point is, is that 12 was important. 
The point is, is that God has reasons for why he does things even when we don't understand him. And what we can know, even if we don't understand God's reasons, is we can know that he's organized. And he was doing something important in the governance of the church. Twelve is the number of governance. There was 12 tribes in, in, in Israel from centuries before. Twelve sons of Jacob were the 12 tribes. And there were to be 12 apostles. And whether they understood it or not, this is what God was doing to position them for the power that he was about to unleash. You know what's cool is, I'm not going to talk much more about the, the significance of the number 12, because what's most great and for us to understand is that even when we don't understand these things, we can still devote ourselves to a God who does. We can still wait, actively wait on God who's positioning, who's, who's moving things around so healthy governance can flow from our lives. We can be secure in him. God doesn't leave any loose ends. He's not disorganized. He doesn't leave things unattended to like I tend to do. I mean, just come and look at my car. I need to clean that up. I need to make a note to that. You can remind me after service. He's organized. He has reasons. And so here's what's great about things. When your life and your circumstances, when they feel out of control sometimes, it's not out of control. It's just that God's reminding you through your circumstances that that you're not the one that's in control and that he is. And we can trust him that he's in control especially when we don't get to see inside the proverbial control tower. Or how about when things in your life are, are going a certain way and you, un, you don't understand why certain things are happening. You don't know why certain things happen in your life. Well, it's more important to know the person who knows. Maybe you don't know the reasons that you go through certain readjustments in your life and circumstances that are difficult, but You don't have to know the reasons. You can know the person who knows the reasons. I won't exhaust this too much, but this is important. We can know the God who knows, and that's more important than knowing. When God positions us in life, when he takes the circumstances in our life to allow something to happen inside of us for for a benefit that we don't even know of, it's often important to simply trust him. How, how often do we want to breeze through those positioning moments in life and to get around those difficult parts where we don't understand how God's using that to position us and to grow us? And, and without knowing it, we're actually missing the power that's supposed to flow from that. Positioning precedes power. We don't want to miss those essential foundations. You know, businesses know this. I was studying in Starbucks the other day, and I'd have lots of conversations over uh, the last several years with Starbucks employees and learned a lot of things that I've thought over the years. Man, this is just wasteful how much they spend on positioning employees and and trainings for employees. It, It seemed like a waste for me. And if you knew what corporations like Starbucks spend on retaining their employees, you'd be shocked. You would think it's wasteful until you start to see the kind of employees that they are able to retain. And in a business that there's otherwise no reason to employ and retain in employment people that are qualified to do much other things. And and all the while, companies like this are able to expand and to grow. You see, waiting and carefully organizing 
is something that God does in his church and in your life, and it's a powerful thing that you don't want to miss. You don't want to brush over. This year, uh, we had a major open door for us to plant uh, two new campus chapters, campus ministries up in Austin, and uh, a new service, a new site of, of our church in Austin. And we had this open door. We had people. There was power here. There was, there was some miraculous uh, un- unity and devotion to this thing that God was doing. And this was in February. And I wanted to make it happen. I wanted to go, okay, we're ready now. We have a place to meet. Uh, we have someone, uh, someone that I know that's going to give us a huge discount on being able to meet there. Let's do this. Well, I got counsel from some other people. Hey, wait a few months at least to, to get your team gathered, to position volunteers, to pray together, to have some time and consistency. And everything in me wanted to avoid this. I didn't want to wait. I didn't want to devote myself to time and praying. And now that we've actually officially launched out and we're in, consistent with what we're doing as of last week in Austin, I am super glad that we spent the time together praying, positioning volunteers. In fact, the next time this thing happens, I don't know where it's going to be somewhere around here. We have a new leadership team and we empower new leaders to preach and serve and reach places we're not reaching yet. The next time it happens, you better believe I'm going to be spending more time. And and we're going to be spending more prayerful time devoting ourselves together and seeing God position people, positioning precedes power. But what we need to know here about Acts 1 and about this church and about this world and about what God's doing is that God's not simply positioning the leadership structure. He's positioning all of our hearts. There were about 120 people gathered together. There were 500 people who saw, who were eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus over a 40-day period. And at this point, there was about 120 people regularly praying together. What we need to know is that as they were devoting themselves together in prayer, God was positioning their hearts. And we need to understand that. He was positioning them. And, And today... When we get together and we pray, even when we don't necessarily see the results and the promises unfold, we can know that power is coming because he is positioning our hearts to receive. And if he weren't to do that, the power would come and we would miss it. We wouldn't wouldn't have the bucket for it to fall into. I sometimes uh, struggle with this, with, with understanding that the position of my heart and remaining in a place where I can receive the power is so important. I get anxious sometimes. You ever been like me where, where you're praying for something and after a while for praying to God for it, you feel like, man, prayer, it's, my prayer is just not working, right? Anyone else ever been there? Like my prayer is not working. Well, let me encourage you with what God's encouraged me with. It's not that your prayer isn't working. It's that you don't know how God's working in you in the midst of your waiting. You don't know how he's positioning your heart to receive the things that you don't understand how it's going to unfold. And you don't have to understand. You just have to trust him. He understands. He's positioning your heart. And you need to work out in your heart that you're going to trust him in that moment. Philippians 2 says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Verse 12. But verse 13, it goes on to say, because it's he who works, both to work and to will for his good pleasure. So listen, when you're praying 
and your prayers don't really amount to the things that, that you want to see, the results that you, you plan on on your timing, the results that you plan on to, to work out for your good pleasure, you can know that you can devote yourself to a God who positions your heart for power, that something better than your best plans and the results that you were forecasting over your life, something better can come your way, something much more powerful, something in his good pleasure. Positioning of your heart especially precedes power. And it happens as we're waiting on him. But don't be mistaken because waiting on him is so much different than we think it is. It's not a passive endeavor. It's not ceasing to to trust in him and just giving up. It's not quitting. Listen, we can understand the point is joyful action. So listen, we can understand something about God, even if we don't understand how it works. Number one, that positioning precedes power. What he's doing behind the scenes is preparing for something huge. And we can just rest in that. But number two, once we're resting in it, it leaves us responsible to wait on him. And listen, waiting is joyful action. There's action, and it's not anxious action. It's joyful action. Waiting is joyful action. So again, in Acts chapter one, verse four, Jesus says, wait for the promise. And we're left to wonder, what does that mean? What does waiting mean to him? Well, 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 it's clarified in verse 14. And these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together. Now listen, them getting together was hard. How many of y'all know for us today to get together, it's hard. And we, for every culture is chronologically myopic, meaning we think the struggles we face are, uh, have not been faced in other times in history. We're myopic. We only see our own struggles. Let me tell you, in the first century, for them to get together day after day and to devote themselves, it was hard for them to get together, but they did it. They had emails to check in their own way. You know, I'm sure there were nap schedules back then. Whatever, however they did naps, their kids had to nap. It was hard to get together. There were demanding bosses who made them work late hours, and yet they had this amazing constancy and unity as they devoted themselves to something much better than their anxieties and their fears and their worries. And they devoted themselves to wait on the Lord. And it was a joyful action, not just sitting around hoping something better will come along. They were active in seeking out the Lord day after day. Waiting is an active endeavor, and it's played out on a team. It's a team sport. It happens in a group setting. Here in verse 14, they were doing what I pray and hope and trust that God will cause to happen in 30 growth groups between here and Austin, over and over again, they were getting together, they were praying for one another's needs, they were praying to a God that can meet them, and they were praying for people that they'd never met before. That's what happens in every one of our growth groups. They were sacrificing all the other things, good, reasonable things, that in trading in for something better in their schedule. They were devoting themselves to a good God together for his kingdom. They were actively, joyfully, waiting on God. They were praying. They were together. They were trusting. They were waiting. Waiting is a joyful action. But listen, 
we have to just kind of face the facts that in our culture, we're not a waiting culture. We are a microwave culture. You have to be so countercultural to joyfully uh, repeat the action of waiting on a good God. You have to be countercultural. We are the culture for which Amazon Prime was not fast enough, and Amazon Prime now had to surface. We are not a waiting culture. We have to be countercultural. Does anyone else remember that marshmallow study, this, the waiting study uh, from a few decades ago? Let me, I'll, I'll rehash it to those of y'all who don't remember this. A few decades ago, they did a study with small children. And uh, if this were me, even today, I would probably struggle with it. But they offered each of these kids in a room a marshmallow. And they stuck them in the room. They said probably similar to what Jesus says, kind of like not many days from now or, or not long from now or in a few minutes. They didn't specify. They didn't give them a clock to look. And they just said in a few minutes, you know, you can come back. And, and if you don't eat this marshmallow, we'll give you another marshmallow and you can have two marshmallows. Or option two, you can just eat this marshmallow right now. Now, I think most of the kids were like, yeah, I want two. What's better than a marshmallow? Two. I'll wait for another one. And most of them probably had an intention of waiting, but most of them weren't strong enough and they just gobbled that sucker down. Now, the few that actually waited for another marshmallow not only got two marshmallows, but they actually went back after two decades and they were able to see something remarkable, a remarkable, consistent correlation between the kids who were able to wait on another marshmallow and how that correlated to other things, other factors in their lives. You see, the kids that were able to wait on the second marshmallow are actually in their adult lives now accomplishing far more in their studies and in their careers. Don't miss the power of waiting. Don't get caught up in what I call the endless cycle of almost. You know the cycle, right? It goes like this. I'm almost graduated. I can't wait. Right? And then you miss all that happens before that in so many ways emotionally. I'm almost graduated. And then it happens. And then it's like, okay, I'm, I'm almost married, right? I can't wait. And then you're married. And then it's, I'm almost a parent. I can't wait. And then when you're a parent, you're like... I'm almost sleeping again. I can't wait. They're almost on a sleep schedule. And then you get by on that. Then it's, they're almost potty trained. I can't wait. I'm sick of poopy diapers. I can't wait. And then they're almost in school. I can't wait. And then they're almost out of school. I can't wait. And then next is, I'm almost retired. I can't wait. And before you know it, You've breezed through everything. And then it's like, I'm almost dead. Hold on here. I can wait, right? Listen, you can wait. But can you just stop? Just say no to the cycle of almost. Say no today. You're always going to be waiting on something. But the question is, is can you be present in your waiting? Can you be be devoted to a person who no matter what you're waiting on, he remains the same yesterday, today, and forever. And Jesus is good today. The question is, is can you receive his goodness in the midst of whatever you're waiting on, in the position you are in 
right now. That is the fight for your soul and it's the fight for your life. Can you be present and trust him and enjoy him today? Again, waiting on him is not a passive endeavor. It's active. It means proceeding forward with a heartfelt, heartfelt position in your soul that you're going to receive God's power instead of relying on your own power. It's a, it's a battle of trust, and it has wonderful consequences, potentially. Waiting on him has always been a big struggle for me. You don't even have to know me that well to know that my extremely energetic disposition leaves me in a place where it's just sometimes really hard to be active and joyful in the process of waiting. I definitely would have been this disciple who was trying to kind of, uh, after maybe I would have waited for maybe a solid 36 hours in the city. And then I would have been like, all right, guys, you know, Jesus did say that we're supposed to go th- to all the, wor- the world um, and, and, and make disciples, right? Because he said to do that. So we need to do this. Enough of this laziness. I would have have done all that stuff, right? And they would have been like, yeah, he said that, but he said to wait. And I would have struggled with that. Here's kind of what my disposition comes from. At 14 years old, I was active and, and waiting on all the delights of sin. And that's what I went after. I was just a normal kid. And then at 14 years old, I was led to Jesus into a relationship with Jesus, and I straight up became a new person. And I've been reeling since then. I've been so active and desirous to, to honor God and to please him, and I've been eager. I've been eager in my disposition and I think in my heart to, to, to honor God. But listen, the evil twin of eagerness is anxiousness. And that's often what I struggle with. Anxiousness that seems like faith, it seems like godly eagerness, but it's not. You see, sometimes faith can be confused with anxious action. Look, faith and waiting on God, it's joyful action. It's not anxious action. Psalm 127, one of my favorite psalms, says, Unless the Lord builds the house, they who labor, labor in vain. And it goes on to say, eating the bread of anxious toil. Let's not be anxious in our waiting. Let's be joyful. But then again, on the other hand, sometimes waiting can be confused with passivity, with sitting around, with giving up, with quitting. It's neither anxiety nor passivity. Waiting is joyful action. Psalm 130, I wait on the Lord. My soul waits in his word, I hope. Isaiah 40, even youths shall faint and be weary and young men shall fall exhausted, but they who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up on wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Listen, you can launch out with your own strength or you can rely on God's. You can wait on God's strength. So I'm going to ask you to be so brave as to be honest with yourself for a second. Give yourself an honest diagnostic. In what ways are you running ahead of God's presence? Various decisions in your life, anxieties, 
maybe things that are disguised as faith? In what ways are you running ahead of God's presence instead of joyfully waiting on him? And specifically, joyfully waiting in the presence of others who you're devoting together to him. If we're going to be consistent with verse 14, what ways are you anxiously running ahead of God? I've shared before that this last year and a half, uh, my wife and I, and our, with our four little kids, we've been in a one-bedroom apartment as we're waiting on uh, our house to be built. And by the time it's actually completed, it'll probably be at least two years of like this. So, but listen, what's happened in these last, this last year and a half and what's going to happen as we're waiting I would not want to miss it. The milestones, the, the, the cute, amazing moments that I'll never have back with my little kids. I'll never have it back. I don't want to wish away a moment. Because when, when we're at our house, there'll be something else we're waiting on. The question is, is, can we do it with joyful action? Can we wait on the Lord where we are? Trust in him where we are. If, if, if you're waiting on him in a difficult moment today and you're doing it with joyful action, then you've, you've been counted worthy to wait on him with another difficult moment tomorrow. And your waiting and your trust in him supersedes whatever difficult things are in your life that will not define you. If your faith in him is stronger than your circumstances, can you wait on the Lord or are you just going to run ahead? Now, my last point is this, because at the end of the day, we, we can understand about how uh, his, his power is made perfect in human weakness and that, that he can position me in ways that I can't. And positioning does precede power. And we can also understand that waiting is something different than we understand it to be. Waiting is joyful action. But what all of this means, the writing on the wall, is that we desperately need him. We desperately need him. And that's uncomfortable but listen, it's good. My last point is this. Needing God is good. Simple. Needing God is good. Jesus told him to go do a bunch of things to change the earth. And if, it, if this wasn't done, none of us would have any business to sit in a room like this with all this beautiful, powerful diversity that only God can create. None of that would have happened unless they would have waited on God and God would have done what only he can do. They needed God. You and I need God. And needing God is good. Thanks for your help there. Needing God is good. In most of my soul, so often in the day, I don't want to need God. And if you were honest with yourself, you'd, you would admit the same thing. You don't want to need God. You don't want to pray, give us this day our daily bread. I want my annual bread. At least a year in advance. It's hard. I don't want to need God. I love faith. But the circumstances that require it to grow in me, I don't always love. It's stressful. And that's the point. That's what God wants to work in me. I need God. In February, geez, seven months ago now, I called uh, the board of our church and I asked them to pray about a very specific thing that we were going through in our church that we needed a lot of prayer for. We were in a place of extreme need for God to come through. And one of our board members, Bill Avery, was on the phone with me and it's almost like he thought I was giving a praise report. I'm like, no, this is a prayer need. He said, uh, 
He says, this will be the best year of our church's history because in the midst of our need, God is going to build our faith like never before. And as much as I didn't want to hear it at the time, he's been so right. And the fruit of his prophecy has been manifest in a lot of human lives that I've seen changed and transformed this year. It's been the best year. You see, the pressure of needing God is good. When people ask me, how do you learn Spanish? How do you learn a new language? Uh, they always go for the external things. And my, my, my desire to, to share with them is it's always pressure. I always say, la santa presión. Whatever can produce that holy, refining pressure where you're uncomfortable enough to need something more than you have right now, that's what you need. And in a greater sense, we need God. And needing God is good. In fact, repeat after me. You ready for this? Repeat after me. I need God. Y'all are good, doing a good job preaching. I need God. I'm helpless on my own. And that's good. That's good. Good job preaching. Y'all, y'all sound like you believed it more than the first service did. See, being a needy person isn't bad. What's bad is trying to have your needs met in the wrong place. You don't have any choice about whether or not you're going to be a needy person. Your choice is where will you go when it's hard to have your needs met? Will you go to the one who has demonstrated that he is worthy of devoting yourself to and waiting on because he is God, or you go to other false gods that disguise themselves as wisdom or good things? Will you anxiously wait on the Lord, or will you, will you earnestly wait on the Lord, or will you anxiously go after other things? We need God. You know, the gospel is all a story about what God has done to meet our needs. Let's remind ourselves of that. We say that our, we, we've said this gospel creed that's a summary of the good news. And I'll say it again. The gospel is the good news that God became man in Jesus Christ. He lived the life that we should have lived. And then he died the death that we should have died in our place. That was on a Friday afternoon, verifiable Friday afternoon in human history, the pinnacle of human history. That same weekend on a Sunday morning, he got up out of the grave. 500 people have been witnesses, eyewitnesses to this occurrence. He died the death that we should have died, but he rose again from the dead, proving that he is God and gaining the power to offer salvation to any who would turn, repent, and receive the good news. To anyone who, who, would, who would turn from waiting on their own strength, their own actions, their own best intentions, their own false gods, turn from anything else we would place our trust in and place our trust in who he is and what he has done. We need God. That's what he offers. There's a difference between a God that offers what only God can offer and people who are not God receiving that though. If you've never received the gift that only God can provide in Jesus, 
even right now in this moment, while we're sitting here and I'm talking and you're just kind of looking at me, you can actually pray. This is how scandalously simple the gospel is. How powerful he is and how helpless we are and how good he is. You can just sit here and pray in your heart and he can hear your heart. That's how powerful he is. You can pray, God, I need you. I need you to make me new. I need you to save me. I'm yours. All the bad, all the good, it's all yours. And you can be a Christian by praying that. He who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's how simple it is to us, but how high of a price he prayed. The gospel is what we needed him to perform, and he's still performing it. You needed, for, for all of us who've already received that before today, received that gift, you needed that the day you received Jesus as your Lord. And today you need it too. And the best thing that you can do for yourself and for the needs in your life and for the people around you that need God too and that God has just sovereignly put in, uh, in, in your life so that he can express his kindness and his goodness to them through you, what they need for you to do is not to run ahead anxiously and try to perform for God. It's to simply remind yourself that you need him. And I'm going to invite you to stand to your feet and we're going to declare our need for God. And what I pray is going to happen is this, is that as you recommit yourself to being a child in need of God, you can reorient yourself and God can reposition your heart to a place of need to where he's flowing into your place of need through the declaration of your faith right now. He's flowing into that place and you can redevote yourself you can redevote yourself together with others so that you go to your growth group this week. And if you don't have a growth group yet, you come and talk to us and we can get you squared away with people that like in verse 14, you can together with them devote yourself in one accord to God and you can declare your neediness and position yourself for a, a greater power that's ever been unleashed from you. Lord, we declare our need for you. We are stronger in our weakness and in our need for you than any human being is in the greatest of their strength. So Lord, we pray that you would reposition our hearts this week moving forward to be in a place of true devotion and need where your power can unleash in and through us unto others. Lord, bless us and others through your saving work this week like never before. Amen.